Alfred Drake and Howard Da Silva sat down with moderator Ike Shamblin for a one-on-one interview in January of 1985. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Hi and welcome. Uh, my name is Ike Shamblin. I'm the moderator, and we're here to discuss uh, good directors. Um, what makes them good? Um, to ask our guests what makes them good, what uh, have you learned from them, how do you use it in your work, because our guests are both star actors and directors, uh, a unique and valuable contribution from our point of view. Um, You may notice that we are all men up here, and that Geraldine Fitzgerald was scheduled to be here. She um, had work in Hollywood and had to go, and Howard DeSilva very graciously so we have Alfred Drake and Howard DeSilver who are going to talk to us about good directors, and I, for one, am glad. Thank you for coming. Um, I wanted to announce that, um, Jim asked me to, that we're having our first roundtable in L.A. next month, and the guest is Ruben Mamoulian. And why I think that's relevant is because Ruben Mamoulian directed Oklahoma, in which both these gentlemen were. So we were talking about that before, and, I, and maybe we could even start with that. I mean, would you say that... Ruben Mamoulian was a good director you have worked with, or am I off to a bad start? <laughs> if I may say something, why don't we leave names out of it? Okay, okay, good uh, idea. We can discuss people more freely. Sure. If we don't have to, especially the bad ones. <laughs> right. Especially the bad ones. Well, so far as I'm concerned, I found Mr. Mamoulian very helpful. Yes? Um, Tell them what about the cowboy. Ah. Uh, yes. I know that was doing what Ruben's idea was, was to give us some idea of the reality of the era and also the reality of a cowboy and what his life might be like. And he said that in the auditions for the show, they had had a cowboy who would come. He brought his own guitar, and he described his posture at one point as being like this, with the guitar in his hand. And I spotted that, and I used it myself later on for a moment in a song called Sorry with the Fringe on Top, which of course delighted Reuben no end, but I found it a very relaxed posture to be in, and a kind of slightly arrogant one, which suited the cowboy at the moment. I also remember the moment when uh, Reuben saw some of the costumes, and he was furious, because they were all terribly pretty, and he said no cowboy in the world ever wore that sort of stuff. (laughs) And he went up, and in front of the producers and costume designer started to tear pieces off them, which I don't think delighted them very much. <laughs> you remember that? No, not at all. Tearing <laughs> stuff off the, off the really? pockets. <laughs> <laughs> not you. you. No, no. You were legit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. was legit. <laughs> but the rest of us looked like chorus cowboys. He's very helpful, and I think he never got quite the credit that he deserved. Hmm. They also tried to fire him out of town. But that's just producer's behavior. When things aren't going right, the first thing you do is fire the director, of course. Was that New Haven or Boston? New Haven. He said that George Abbott came up and... Mr. Abbott came up and loved the show, and then they decided not to fire him. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's wonderful that he would stand up for it, you know, and and, uh, not... 
as you think, not taken. That's say, like George Abbott. That's, yeah. that's, that's the kind of honor and mm -hmm. discipline yes. of a man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe um, I, I thought one thing. Milo O'Shea, I think, said several years ago that he had worked with five good directors. Maybe he's worked with six now, by now. But that they were all different. They, they were all good, but they all worked very differently. Would you say that that was true? Uh, or that uh, the people you think are, are good all have very unique ways of working, or not particularly? Or? Uta, Uta Hagen talks about, about uh, George Abbott's line reading direction yes. and says, uh, because Abbott's direction tended to be, mustn't mention people's names, George Abbott <laughs> tended to be, uh, uh, in terms of tradition, uh, old, old, old fashioned, uh, endless yeah. line reading. Yes. I, I think of Tom Bosley in Fiorello listening endlessly while George Abbott would give him line reading after line reading. Uda Hagen said, you have, to, you have to interpret George Abbott's line huh. readings in terms of their intention huh. and not to huh. take too literally the surface thing on it. Uh, but very tough, very tough. I think he's changed considerably in the way he, he directs in after years, but I remember at the early time. Well, I haven't worked with him in many, many years, so I don't know what he's like now. I had heard I don't know, that you could say anything to George Abbott once. You could present any idea to him once, and he would listen respectfully. But if you gave him a stupid idea twice, he got ornery. I don't know if that is true. Well, I, I didn't have the occasion to test him. Mm -hmm. Good. Maybe I could get at it. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'm, I'm just thinking. He frightened people occasionally. Yes. Mr. Abbott? Yeah, Mr. Abbott. But not ever. Was it just his, his reputation that frightened her? No, he was a frightening man. I mean, which would you say it was? Just because he was Mr. Abbott, or? I don't think that his, his, uh, his intention was to intimidate mm. people, or to be large, but the general sense of the man, the experience of the man, the intelligence, and the, apropos what you said about uh, five directors, six directors, where they all, I, I mentioned him to start with because his pattern was so different from from others mm. whom mm. I found occasion to admire, mm. uh, Arthur Penn, the director who, which who we weren't to mention names. <laughs> <laughs> if you're saying something good, it's all right. Arthur so, yeah. Penn, <laughs> who, uh, who the day before we opened in the counting house, changed the whole uh, introductory blocking, so to speak, uh, and then. And then when he was challenged by me, saying, well, how about the aesthetics? How about the... Looked at me kind of and said, it'll be, it'll be lovely looking even though we changed the body. <laughs> Very huh. challenging. Huh. And, uh, but his pattern and, and uh, presentation was quite different from George Abbott's, you can imagine. I'm just going to say, like, are there things that you think that you would want from a director? Like, what would make a director good in, in your eyes um, if you were working on staging or interpretation or... Shall I speak at this? Sure. Both of us. Yeah. Mm. <coughs> I want to go back a little bit. One of the things about George Abbott is, of course, he had the appearance of the stern and rock-bound coast, which helped a lot. Very tall and very ascetic in appearance. And also very self-disciplined. And as a result, he expected discipline of his entire cast, which is not wrong, no. as far as I'm concerned. No. I think that 
it's hard to list them in order because I haven't figured them out that carefully myself for this afternoon. But the things that I look for in a director are, first of all, a really thorough knowledge of the script. Uh, somebody who's done his homework and done it well, mm -hmm. who has worked with the author over a considerable period of time, so that he knows what the author's intentions are. Also, if he's been involved in the rewrite, so that they are in agreement on it mm -hmm. beforehand. There will always be surprises anyway, things that you cannot possibly anticipate. Neither the author, nor the director, nor the cast. But certainly someone who knows his text thoroughly, who is disciplined himself, and who expects... I like somebody who expects discipline of a cast. I don't mean the occasional horsing around, which is believing of tension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's something else. Then you hope that he will be imaginative, or she will be imaginative. That the director will have the kind of imagination which sparks imagination in you. Of course, you pray that the person will be articulate and not grunt at you, <laughs> which has happened. Um, I can say this about one particular man because he's, he's a very good friend and I loved him dearly, Jack Cole, who was primarily a choreographer and used the same expressions when he was talking about directing. His favorite one being when he wanted you to be intense about something, he'd say, clutch your Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> What's that reason? <laughs> Be intense about it. Mean it. Um, who, who is Clyde? Um, what is Clyde? His own. <laughs> his or her own. Out here. Um, <laughs> one, hopes for, one hopes for passion. And the director will really care about the work and about you as a performer. That you'll be interested in people, not only as actors, but actors as people that he will be able to communicate with them on many levels, not just on the level of the text or the level of performance, but he will know how to speak to each person. It's rare that you can speak to two actors exactly the same way in order to get something. It can happen, of course. All the rules are made to be broken. I'd like to feel that uh, the director have come into the play with a strong concept with which the author agrees so that everybody's working toward the same end. I'd like to hope that the director had planned in advance whatever are the mechanical details, as much as possible. I've seen them ad libit and do marvelous jobs, so it doesn't have to be planned that way. I don't mean just be a traffic cop. I mean, somebody who's thought out in advance, what are, where is A climax here? Where is B climax there? Where is C climax there? Where's the peak of all these climaxes? And how does it serve the play? There are a lot of other things I had hoped for. I'm glad when I get a few of them. Hmm. Good. Your turn. Yeah. Good. You know, well said. A lot of the things you said. Absolutely. I like a director also who, to acknowledge that he doesn't know something, when he doesn't indeed know something. But to be free enough and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, talented enough to say, let's figure that out together. I don't know what the answer is to that, along with the knowledge and the ability. Uh, I like a director who talks after a while to achieve the relationship with the cast so he can talk in monosyllables mm -hmm. or indeed in, in any language, including that dance language you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Or as I did when I was working with with uh, with Ozzy Davis and Ruby D in Ozzy's production of Pearly Victorious, when I when I found myself talking in Yiddish and they're responding in Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because in many cases the the endless 
intellectualization, the ending, mm-hmm. and the challenging of the director. They always saying, you know, give me the answers when indeed the answers are to be experienced and felt and jointly maneuvered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like, apropos that, a director who, who sees acting as, as revelation mm-hmm. and who encourages the actor to, uh, on a free time, free away from the pressure of rehearsals or schedules, to uh, to really uh, investigate the role and the circumstances, and to uh, uh, I like that relationship between a, a director and an actor. Occasionally, I've had that lovely experience in film mm-hmm. with a director who has rehearsed the company before the shooting, and who has really helped the actor to uh, to uh, free himself and to come alive with all of this. I can like you, that. Can you think of one? Uh, Sidney Lumet. In, in what? In Garble Talks, was that kind of uh-huh. director. Wonderful, rehearsing a week in advance and, and rehearsing to free, to free the actors, again, each on their own level. Uh, matter of fact, with a run-through of the entire play, movie, uh, the final day of the week's rehearsal, and that despite the fact that, of course, in shooting, you weren't going to shoot in schedule, you weren't going to shoot in... Uh, in uh, but that was that was a he is a he is a he is a what they call I suppose in film an actor director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were wonderful. Man. It was wonderful. wonderful. Just wonderful. wonderful working with him, and he 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 has been a, a stage actor, as you know. He has directed in theater as well. So that that was very wonderful. What? I was thinking I've had the pleasure of working with you, and he's directed me several times. And uh, Howard has his own way of doing things, which I am very comfortable with. I love to work with him. I love to be directed by him. He fits a lot of what I described a little while ago. But he has his own expressions. For example, if he wants to make a suggestion, but he's not sure about it, he'll say, don't charge me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all right. It gives you a kind of feeling of freedom. Yes, let's try that and see what happens. Maybe something else will come out of it quite different. He'll be just as pleased if something is better than what he had in mind. So I don't mind talking about you. You don't mind. Have you ever worked for Alfred as a director? Yes. Once. Not very successfully. <laughs> I thought it was, even though it you was were successful. You were very good. <laughs> he played the leading role. I was too impatient. It was something that I've had to learn. Not with him. <clears throat> with him. But my desire to see results ahead of time was not right. And he helped me with that. He told me to slow up a bit, and that helped a little bit. But it was one of Howard's best performances anyway, so I must have done something right. What was I loved it. it. The doctor in spite of himself. Please, Dr. Willie Nilly. Dr. Willie Nilly. <laughs> <laughs> I love working in that. It was fun. Oh, gosh. And the music and the lyrics. Just yes, in a very different kind of theater than we are accustomed to doing in this country. Yes. How so? Well, stylized. It's in Moliere, of course. And very much of it is your reactions physical reactions, mental reactions, everything have to be very sharp and are very often totally unprepared. Look unprepared, certainly from the audience's point of view. It's a little bit vaudeville. Someone says something, you respond to it immediately. Your emotion changes immediately with nothing, no pause in between. It's Punch and Judy. Shtick, Lotsi, they called it. I mean, that's what they did, Lotsi, that's right. Commedia which is where Molière got many of his ideas, of course, from the Italian company that played there, two companies. Where do we do that? On the east? 
Well, no, in the your old theater where you had Barbizon. success, the Barbizon. Howard had directed a production of, uh, what the hell did you call it? What did you call it? The World it? of Sholem The World uh, of Sholem Aleichem there, and, which was excellent. And I think for that reason, we were rather fond of the theater. Mm -hmm. Though God knows it wasn't a very good theater backstage, <coughs> or on stage either. Did you find that working together, as, that you had worked together as actors, helped you when you were working together director-actor? It helped me. Uh, Howard and I shared a dressing room in Oklahoma. You did. And uh, one of the things people, only people who studied with him know it, is that Howard is an exceedingly good teacher. And many, <laughs> many ideas uh, he planted in my head so mm. delicately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were ideas worth considering huh. and very useful. He's a very imaginative actor to work with sometimes a little overly imaginative. Mm. I remember the, the smokehouse scene, for example. When you're in a musical especially, and the characters are not all that in-depth, uh, it's very easy to become routine. Especially if you're singing a song and you're gazing into a, a spot which is directly on you, and the first thing you know after you've been running about a year or so, you're doing your income tax while you're singing the song. <laughs> and the smokehouse was a scene that I always enjoyed because how it invariably brought something new to it each time. <laughs> no, but good. I don't mean that it was uh, irrational or just for the sake of the novelty. You kept trying for fresh things to do, and I would have to respond to them. Every once in a while, I'd try to pull something on him. <laughs> but I will say that I think we only got out of hand about twice in all the months that we were together. But I used to look forward to that scene because I knew something interesting was going to happen. I was going to be working with an interesting actor. And an imaginative one. During that or any uh, uh, long run, do you want the director to come back? What What do you find if he does that he can give you that's a value? It's absolutely necessary for a director to come back. I uh, we never discussed this in terms of the in terms of the uh, rules and the laws mm -hmm. of the SSDNC, mm -hmm. but I think that oh, one of these yeah. days it's going to have to yeah. be put into it that the director, even though he may be offered a number of other jobs, and heaven knows, and meanwhile, though he may be impatient and bored with a production that he's seen, which may have a run, but which he's, which he sees his own errors in, or the yeah. other thing, yeah. must come back no less than, I would hope, in the long run of a play. All of us want the long run, but the problem of keeping it alive eight performances a week, night after night, the long run is a really tough one. And I would somehow spell in, director had to come back, I would say, at least once a week. But uh, it's been proposed that it be twice a month or some such thing, but actually come back to husband, to husband the show, to really, and in many cases, in many cases to Again, sometimes a stage manager is encouraged to do this job, yeah. to be there. But not all stage managers want to or can. And when you get a, 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 a good director to come back after run, in many cases a good director will say, forget that laugh now, it no longer has any sense in relation to the total scene. What, what did you really, what was the intention of the scene? Hmm. Even, if you, even if you forego that laugh or reaction a couple of days, but be, be, be tolerant of yourself, 
play the intention, and, listen, and it'll come back after a while. I mean, really, really work with the actor on, on the real elements of the play. So in a way, he's freeing you. He's saying, don't worry about your obligation to this. Or your he can. That's what the elements of the director can do when he comes back. I think, it's a, I think it's necessary in our kind of theater. It would be less necessary in repertory, it seems to me, where the actor isn't required to play a batch of performances all at once and where the problem of being mechanical uh, doesn't quite enter in the same way. But uh, certainly in the long run, I think it's important for a director to, to husband the production. Have you had that? What do you think of it? Oh, I'm in such complete agreement that it's almost, I don't have to say anything except to tell you this, that you're so happy to be in a hit, which is something to be grateful about. But there is a touch of resentment when immediately after the notices come out and announce that you're the hit, the producers and the directors go to the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you sort of get, well, here I am, all by myself with my fellow actors. And you wish to God they'd come back, and then when they come back, you wish they'd do something. There are those directors who come back and look at a show every once in a while and send backstage notes. Yeah. And that's not much good? Not really. It's not the same thing as the communication with the director personally. Uh, there's another thing that I've, that I've always felt was very bad, since uh, I myself have been an understudy. When I first began, I was in the chorus and understudied. And that was that the original director never came around and did a damn thing about the other studies. Yeah. It, was a, it was the stage manager, and sometimes it was the assistant stage manager. And what they did was to put you through your paces. You walk there, you walk there, she comes over here, you go over there, that kind of thing. As a result of that, having learned from that, in almost anything I've directed, if there was an out-of-town especially, I would have an understudy rehearsal before we opened, with all the yeah. understudies. I saw John Payne when I was at school in New Haven, and he had to, the understudy, John Payne didn't make it like second performance, the understudy went on with no rehearsal. Oh, well. <laughs> he did very well, but, whew. That's wonderful to do that. Many years ago, I had to go on in a musical which had two acts and a third act, which is about 20 minutes long. And I had never been staged in the third act, mm. and I had to go on and do it. Mm. Moreover, I could not look at the third act from the position I was in. You couldn't see? When I was performing in the chorus, I could not see <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> but what did you do? Did you just sort of move about at random? <laughs> well, I tried, to, I tried to use what little common sense I had at the time. I made one mistake. It was <laughs> the ending of the show, and it was Kitty Carlisle playing the lead, and a then very famous leading musical comedy man called William Gaxton. And it was a show called White Horse Inn. Um, a certain amount of unfriendliness had developed between Miss Carlyle and Mr. Gaxton during the course of rehearsals, which was understandable. <laughs> and I should have taken that into account. But in this last scene, it, the romance between the two of them, in spite of their breaking apart, had finally come to a resolution, and they were both brimming with happiness. Never having seen it, I assumed that he kissed her. So I did. She didn't say anything. And then about the third performance that I went on, she came to me, she said, you know, there isn't any kiss tape. No, dear. <laughs> Go bald. <laughs> didn't she I suggest mean, that you keep it anyway? If you're a kid and you're playing a star or loves at a real star, and then you find out they should never have taken that advantage. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I should have realized it, but she wouldn't let Gaxon kiss her. Hmm. <laughs> 
No names. No names. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> but she's alive. Well, she was. She was a darling. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the marvelous thing is how helpful other actors are to understudies. Nine times out of ten, they really do everything they can to help you. There were two character actors in that play. Um, one was a man whose name I can never forget because I played a character later who had that name, Frederick Graham. He was an English character actor. And the other one was Arnold Korff, K-O-R-F-F. And we were doing White Horse Inn, which was based on a play called The White Horse Inn. And in the original play, Arnold Korff had played the leading role. And now, of course, he was playing the Emperor Franz Josef, which was just a, a bit. But those two, I'd never had any direction. Those two men took me up to their dressing room and taught me how to play the role. It's a wonderful thing to remember about two marvelous people. Tendency, tendency, as you talk, the tendency, again, on the part of succeeding productions or understudies or replacements to do a carbon copy of the person who preceded them. I'm thinking of a stage manager who worked in Oklahoma, whose job it was to make carbon copies of each mm -hmm. person. And that's such a, you know, you find yourself saying, but good heavens, yeah. what is your, in, at the Blackstone Theater in Chicago, when I was going, I stopped off and saw a production of, 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 of Oklahoma, in which a friend of mine, Lou Poland, was playing Judd. And I saw it, and I finally went back and said, what the hell are you playing my Judd for? You can play your own damn Judd. You can play Judd. Your, your Judd would be very interesting to see, you know, doing, you know, you recognized yourself in the imitation, you know. That's part of the safety of the of the commercial theater that says it worked once and therefore we're going to have it <coughs> exactly and assure ourselves. And it becomes dead the same. It becomes absolutely dead. It's like it's like again it's the disease of a long mechanical run mm -hmm. in which you uh, well the director <laughs> when you threw my dirty picture postcards all over the town stage <coughs> in a smokehouse in a fury and I spent the rest of the scene gathering up. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about me, 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 me burying it. <laughs> that didn't, that didn't happen every night. <laughs> well, you've worked, I have to mention a name, because I know you've worked with Gilgood, and I saw that, and you were wonderful, and it was wonderful, I thought. Did, did, um... I was not wonderful. The production wasn't wonderful. Wasn't oh. Anything about it was wonderful from my point of view. I regretted bitterly that I had done really? it, and I knew it was a mistake. Well, then let's forget his name. Sure. Oh, well, of course. Well, I'm going to tell the story since you brought his name. Please. Um... <laughs> Did you see recently a television program which was, I thought, excellently done, An Englishman Abroad? Yes, wonderful. Now, the lady who played the leading role... Carl Brown. Hmm? Carl Brown? Carl Brown. I had worked with in London on the BBC. She had played... Uh, oh, hell, I did a fellow and she played Iago's wife and I can't think of her name again. And uh, we got along very well. She's a marvelous actress and a wonderful lady. Very free-spoken. I hope you won't resent one word I'm going to use. And I knew that she had worked with uh, Gilgood. And I met her in London one day. I took her to lunch. And we were in the middle of a very elegant restaurant called the Caprice. It was then elegant, anyway. And she came in looking like a million dollars with one of those garden party hats that you can't believe. And as you realize, she's a very beautiful woman. And they sat us down practically in the middle of the restaurant, and I, at one point I said, tell me, Carl, what has been your experience of Gilgood as a director? What do you think of him as a director? And she said in a trumpeting voice, Gilgood could not direct 
fuck on a shutter. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I must confess that I didn't want to hear that at that particular time. And I wish I'd borne it in mind because she was right. Oh God. He is a delightful man, but those circumstances were impossible for him. Uh, the Hamlet. Richard was a man with a mind of his own, very strong mind of his own. And while he respected John's knowledge, he could not be controlled by John. Also, this rather playboy idea of doing a dress rehearsal of the thing yeah. was mainly so that Richard would not have to get into a Hamlet costume again because it bored him. He'd done it too many times. And the result was that the play was not really ever directed. And his uh, frustration was such that he would take the opening scene and direct it and redirect it and redirect that opening scene until he killed all the actors. They didn't have the biggest notion. The poor Horatio and uh, all that wonderful opening scene which is so beautiful fell apart. It never was played properly because it had been played in about 30 different ways. And then, of course, at one point, when we were out of town, Gilgit left town and said, all right, now go on and do it for a while. I'll come back and look at it later. <laughs> and then, of course, real chaos ensued. The people who did best in the play, I think, were those who had come expecting to do all the work by themselves. Like uh, Polonius. Polonius. Mm, Hume Cronin, mm. who really did an excellent job because he had in mind exactly what he was going to do all the way through. I had something in mind, too, but it was wrong. But there was nobody to tell me that it was wrong. Oh, dear. And I, did, I never really learned how to play that role until about three weeks before we closed, how to play that role, I should say, in that production. And I didn't respect what I was doing, but that's when people said I was good, because I played a 1023rd villain. All I had to do was chew grapes and spit them out. I didn't do that everything else. So I can't, I can't say that it was a very happy experience. He might be a good director for all I know and something else. He was not on that instance. Alfred, who directed the Othello that you were in when you did Iago at the, in Connecticut? The uh, putative director was John Hausman. <laughs> There's more. Uh... <laughs> oh, why do I think of it? Well, because, 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 jeez, I thought you were one hell of a, yeah, a marvelous Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed playing the role. It's a wonderful role. Who would be playing it? When you talk about, you know, the kind of thing that you did with the, uh, mm. with the hammer. Not so much. No, that wasn't very happy making. When you say the, the uh, supposed director was John Hausman, um, that's as far as I'm going to go. Okay. What can an actor, what, or what have you done, say you've got a bad director, to protect yourself? Can you? No. No? You've never worked with a bad director? You suffer. <laughs> you suffer for your eyes? And you worry. <laughs> you try to avoid going to other people. You try to avoid, you try to avoid consulting your friends and, and associates. You try to avoid that because that way you're sure death, even with a mediocre director. Uh, but it's, uh, it's hell. 
Those are the ugly moments, as a matter of fact. You don't really want to recall them. Anybody have questions or, or thoughts or things?
And I thought, by golly, there's, there's a good pattern for me to follow. But I didn't follow it. And I didn't take into account the fact that it was a completely different production with different actors, different Hamlet, different everything. It was stupid of me. So that's why I wasn't very happy about it. Will you say something? You're sitting there mute. I'm, 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 I'm enjoying what you're saying. You talk about, uh, you know, actors go through all kinds of hell with critics start to talk a little bit, maybe you expand it, what the director goes through as a director, the way everything is that flow and thing, that we could touch something with you that makes you say, hey, maybe I should go back and make a change. What is your question? The question is the about what your reaction is to critics. As a director. Good and bad. I like your going to, to what's his name in Boston and saying, you know, elaborate. What did you mean by that? I've done that with a critic here in New York. Uh, as an actor and as a director, I found myself in such disagreement with a certain uh, critic that I challenged her and said, elaborate on that. I don't, if, if, if what you say is true, then I've been completely mistaken about my approach to it. I'd like to know. And we talked about it, and she said whether part of grace or not that it was that she may have been a little too uh, hasty in her evaluation of my performance and so on and so on. Uh, I know of directors and actors who say that they don't read reviews or pay any attention to reviewers. Uh, I personally uh, uh, evaluate them based upon the, my, my feeling about the particular reviewer. I don't take all the reviews as a, as a but, uh, and I find that, that some of them are very valuable and that I review uh, their reviews in terms of my work. In general, the work of a director is so... Uh, uh, the theater uh, reviewers and the audiences are, by and large, so ignorant of the director's contribution. The more creative and successful he is, the more veiled is his contribution. And all that they can say, for the most part, is fast-paced or slower. And the most, the most mediocre kind of superficial comments. They don't know what the director's comment, uh, contribution is. How can they know? I'm not even talking about his work with the actor. I'm talking about his work with the... If he is indeed a leader, a, that means partly a teacher, partly... And all the things that Alfred said about commitment to the work and having done preliminary thing with a playwright and so on, and then what happens is that his work in the actual production is the sum total of thousands of choices made moment to moment in the course of rehearsal time. Thousands of choices in the course of a single day. And, and, and some of those choices are absolutely crucial and, and, and key. Well, who the hell knows that? Who sees that? In many cases, the, the people themselves whom one is working with don't recognize those things. Because you, you, sometimes you, you, make, you make those comments obliquely. Sometimes, as I said a moment ago, you make them in strange languages or in monosyllables. Sometimes you make, you make I mean, you change. I observed my apprenticeship in the theater with a director who, who, uh, who, who, who really, I wish to hell that she had done more work in the course of the of the vital years afterwards, Eva Le at the Civic Repertory Theater. 
I was an apprentice for Eva Legallion, and the things that I used to watch her work in, in lighting and in, and in staging and in design and, the, and in costume, and why this and why that, and late at night, and we're talking about a theater, a true repertory, which means a library of plays, a library of plays of various styles, and by no means did Legallion ever put a, a banner across the front of the stage to presumably signal her pattern, her style, uh, or a wire across, not that kind of vulgarity saying, this is the director's stamp on the work. The work would demand what her stamp would be, in a many and plus her own imagination and talents. But there was a, a whole variety of, of, of plays in that library, which was the Civic Repertory Theater. Then, if you please, also, that theater at that time was part of a representational kind of design, even in the most stylized kind of sets. So you never did them against, against velours or, or a canvas. They were, they were to be built. Now, if you imagine that, and Miss Legallion relighting the thing with any link, our stage electrician, uh, at, at night for the following days, you saw such a variety of contributions. Uh, who knows that? Who sees that? Ideally... Ideally, if you are swayed by a work, uh, uh, well, not even the director's brilliance, not even his superstardom uh, is, is in front of the work. He gives himself to the role. Alfred, I just remembered, you're, you're with your legs crossed. I just remembered it. I got that visual kind of thing, and I don't remember when you said that, what's his name, mentioned that, you know, and if you did it, you did indeed. Uh... uh no, no, no. It's a very tough. The more, it seems to me, the more gifted and the more truly creative and artistic the director is, the more concealed is his contribution, the more part of the total, total work that is. And when you see, when you see uh, splendiferous uh, elements of stage crafts of all kinds, uh, that may be very beguiling, and you may find yourself saying, supporting the rationale of, well, the play was so mediocre that it required that kind of brilliant production to make it come alive. My reaction to that almost always is, well, you shouldn't have done the play then. It was that mediocre. That may be kind of purest in a way, but I feel strongly about it. Well, relating this to the critics, I think one of the things that infuriates us, I'm in thorough agreement with Howard on everything he just said, is that when you read a review and the director is praised obscenely, I feel, because the director has been showing you his big thumb all night long. This is my imprint. This is what I did all over the place. I agree with Howard. You shouldn't know what the director has done. So far as critics are concerned, it's that same old story. It's the ones they praise that hurt, not the ones that they dead. When they praise what you feel are the wrong people, then you say, oh, my God, there are no, uh, no uh, levels upon which they can judge. I understand and feel very much in agreement with their inability to tell what the director did. But when, it's they, when they do tell what the director did, then I worry. Mm -hmm. Easy for them to tell what an act did. Uh, I'm sorry, there are people. Yeah. I mean, this is a strange question, but I think it's important. Given a Reviews that are less than yours, let's not say telling. What do you, as a director, feel is your responsibility 
think that the director is not a shlemiel and knows what he's talking about if you accept his 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 comments or her comments well i suppose that the two things one let us talk about those comments were they valid can we do something about them can we work on the play can we profit from them if indeed the man the man's comments were not show worthy and not really worthy of us can we then go on disregarding those can we really be strong enough to disregard them in the same way that you tell a company uh, uh, after it's opening or before it's opening not to listen to their sisters cousins uncles and aunts but for better or worse we are our own mentors and we can't uh, to the other I mean your, your, your point is so general I, I wonder well I realize it makes a difference whether you respect or don't respect yes. what's happening in the rehearsal still the director I think owes something to those actors who are going to go on with it. well to go to the, to the, to the, not to go to the Azores not to take a trip <laughs> but to stand by with a company uh, I've known that experience I don't know whether that was quite that experience the same way which is when you're in a when you're in a production and the and the big machamaks go away. You find, and then they come around. You find yourself resenting their. their you say, "Oh, you decided to come by, huh? Here we've been holding the fort, knocking our brains out. The moment's at the moment, you decide to say hello to us." So, so I know it. But in this situation, where the company may feel challenged and threatened by the by such a review and so on, I think it's important for the director to come by, work with the company in one way or another. I don't know. What else? It rarely happens, of course, because most directors, if this play is not successful or the musical isn't successful, uh, want to get away from it as fast as they possibly can, go hide their heads and so on. Uh, I've had two experiences which may have something to do with it. I, I directed a musical called Court in Time, and the star, the leading man, out of town claimed he could not go on, that his throat was affected by it. I think he was just frightened. He was not a singer primarily, but he was doing fine. He's a very good actor, and he was fine on the role, but he just got frightened. Him every minute of the time. It was a hateful experience, but of course what happened was the authors begged me to continue, and they were friends. So I went ahead with this thing, and it turned out to be a turkey. It ran something like, I don't know, four months. And I hated that man. I tried very hard to direct him, and he, I, I bulldozed him into doing a few of the things that he should be doing. But I, would, I did go back primarily because I felt sorry for the rest of the cast who had to work with him. And I did all I could to maintain their spirits in as high as it was possible. It worked out not necessarily in that production, but in future productions because of the, those actors... Some of them were very happy to be working with me again. So it did serve some purpose. One of them was that marvelous actor, Joe, uh, the old man who played in uh, 12 Angry Men. 
Irishman. Oh, he's a marvelous actor. I can't think of his name. And that did some good. I, I know it did some good. I don't think it did any tremendous amount of good, but it helped them a little bit. And then recently I made a, what was probably a large mistake. I wrote a play, which I shouldn't go, I shouldn't go back to writing, but I've gone back to it anyway. And uh, we tried it out in Richmond, Virginia. The artistic director warned me in advance there was only one critic. There were two critics, but the other one didn't count at all. There would be one critic who would review, and he would give it a bad review. Mm -hmm. I said, how do you know that? He said, because he gives everything a bad review. He hasn't had a good review since we opened. And he did give us a bad review. However, I was the director as well, and I played the leading role. How much of a hog can you be? But I, for once in my life, I wanted to make all the mistakes myself. <laughs> and I made some. But during the course of the three-week run, I, I gave the cast, I let them have two more performances just like the opening night. Thereafter, we rehearsed every day. I made changes in the text every day. And by the time we had gotten around to the last week, we were in really good condition. The cast never let up. They were all willing to do the work. They were all happy to do the work. They were glad somebody was paying attention to them. On top of that, that same idiot critic, because we sold out, you see, Word of mouth was extremely good. Same media critic came back and admitted that he'd heard that people were enjoying the thing, so he'd better see it again. <laughs> he promptly gave us a rather good review. <laughs> and all he had to say at the end was, well, of course it needs more work. Still, but... Actors respond. So do directors. But actors respond to somebody who cares about the work they're doing. Suppose it's the schmuck you're saying, unless you don't respect what he said. Then you disregard him and you struggle and you, and, you, and, you, and you say to the company, this is a nonsense review. It's a, you, you pay no attention to it. I had great difficulty with that with Sandhog, mm. which I co-produced as well as directed. We got Schlag. I don't remember that. The reviews were good. Schlag, except by the Herald Tribune, except by uh, Walter, when he was at Walter, the Walter uh, who, who said that we had achieved, um, set up. But for the most part, it was schlag, and and uh, and uh, there was a situation in which not only uh, everybody was challenged, and the uh, some of the associates of the production, Arnold Pearl and I, had co-directed it with the Phoenix, and a lot of the people, our co-talents, came around with endless notes. Uh, the first act, the second act, everything that the that the critics had mentioned and, and other things besides were part of these hysterical last-minute notes. Last minute? Had we opened already? Yes, we had. Anyway, uh, I found myself going through these and saying, these two notes make sense. The others are part of, part of hysteria. And the company, the most wonderful, wonderful company, uh, responded to, to our positive enthusiasm and to rejecting both the, both the nonsense of the reviewers, in my opinion, and the hysteria of some of our associates and played the whole run. It was another one of those productions which ran, I think, 60, 60, yeah, 60 performances or something like that. You're talking about a regional kind of theater where that reaction takes place, aren't you? There are enough mindless reviewers and there are enough hysterics like that so you can't very well come to a company and say, Disregard this nonsense. 
you know more about this than they, we know more than I told you. Nothing. Is there any valid point in what they've been saying here? Really, we don't go turn out blind. But is there really? And if there isn't, indeed, then you go on and look. I mean, present the play. Yes. At the same time? I would I've only done it once, and I'll never do it again. No. <laughs> That's right. I, I agree with that. I think that it's a... It's a it's I, had, I had to do it to get it out of my system. Mm -hmm. But I, if, if I understood part of your question, uh, th there is a lot the actor can learn from various directors, and there is a lot the directors can learn from various actors. It is a give-and-take situation. Now, I don't mind saying that I've worked with three top-notch directors. Howard was one. The other two was a man named Julie Dassin. And I'm talking about the Julie Dassin a good many years ago. And before that, a man that none of you ever heard of named Eugene Bryden. Now, the one thing that they all had and have, Howard still has, certainly, is the ability to make you feel that what you were doing was important. Many directors approach a play or a musical as a task. Let's get this done and done as well as we possibly can, right? <laughs> and it doesn't, you say, all right, that's my job, I'll do what I can. But when there is someone who makes you feel that every moment you're in the theater, not just on stage, is of tremendous value, it makes you feel justified in being an actor. It doesn't happen very often. Could you address a cast that you haven't talked about that? Let's say there's a problem with an actor. Reading for someone, nothing is said, or there's an awkward pause afterwards, or a director will give you some kind of an adjustment to make. As you walk out the door, the actor never knows. What is going on? Because he's been hired, and then maybe he probes the director to get some kind of reason why he was picked. It could be size, it could be quality. But I think it's an interesting area that the actor, it's such a mystery sometimes to actors. But directors, you know, you handle it. You do it, you've done it, you've been on both sides. But particularly as a director sitting on the other side of that table, and in musicals, you know, it's going to sing. There are eight people there. It's like, God help me. I'm just interested to hear what you have to say. Alfred's, or Alfred's, I don't know, about to do this pretty soon with another company that he's done. I, I, I have done it for the past years. I have a particular, uh, attitude toward that as a director choosing actors or performers I, I uh, first of all I don't turn the lights off in the house the lights are to be on in the house there is no dark law of a house there is no threat out there I sit close to the stage I greet the actors everyone who comes in 
I greet them and talk about their own choices, interests, and life, and so on. Many actors, by the way, who have felt rejected by me in terms of the role, have felt nonetheless that the casting experience was an absolutely joyous one. Uh, that's partly my my empathy. With my partly my, it's time consuming. Uh, it's uh, it's a. Uh, but in many cases also, such as open casting calls, open equity, open equity calls, I found myself, despite my smuggery and feeling sure that I knew exactly, casting from the open call, quite unexpectedly. Uh, found somebody that you hadn't anticipated, somebody that, and somebody who really comes in and is, because part of the mystery of that is that if you're casting and have an open call, you find yourself, and the whole, the whole, the whole process of, of reading for roles is in itself such a, such a, even if you have the most talented person reading with them, such a challenge, such an anachronistic uh, problem in casting. How else do you do it? Uh, so you, but in many cases, uh, uh, one of the wonderful things about that is that when you've set on somebody who is very interesting and in is a possible in the, in the possible role, and somebody else comes in after that and presents something either in improvisation or reading the role which is even more interesting and more valid and more proper. And then somebody else, and then you find yourself saying, my God, the possibilities of talents are endless. Uh, the potential is, is, never, is never ceasing. And that can be terribly exciting and also terribly exciting in terms of casting. No substitute for that kind of empathy. The fact that I'm an actor in that situation helps to make the... Uh, on the other hand, when I was directing the thing that you put me up for, the directing the Sacco Vanzetti oh, yeah. play, the composer, uh, Alfred was set for it, and he, su he suggested me for the directing job, and I, and I did it. In that, a, an actor came in who read, and and then came back immediately afterwards and said, uh, have you chosen me to do that role yet? And I said, no. And I, he said, well, uh, uh, you have to consider me. And I said, I have. And he said, no, but I'm very right for it. Hear me again, and I said, uh, "There's somebody else on a meeting." He said, "No, but really, I'm." And I found myself saying to him, "I respect your passion and your desire for it, but I respect my own freedom of choice. I've got to make the choice here. I can't tell you whether I've said this or not, but you're going to have to trust me." And I, and I, but he was really, he was, he was, his own desire and passion were marvelous. But at the same time, he was ready to cast himself in it. He was ready not to. Uh, wanted to come back. Wanted to... No. No, I was saying, I was thinking that you're right. Of course, that anyone who has been an actor and uh, is directing when it comes to casting is bound to feel that empathy and bound to worry for each one of them. You've got to be careful. You don't worry too much. Hmm. Um, it's all very difficult. When I was auditioning, I remember how I hated it. I hated every moment of it. When it was singing, I didn't mind a reading. In fact, I rather enjoyed reading. But singing, if you're nervous, for example, your voice wobbles, and it shows. So that's why you hear most of the time, if they're smart at all, when singers get up to audition, they usually sing a fast song, something in two. So they don't have to sustain any one note too long. Or if it is one note, it's at the end of the song, when by then they've got their breath and they're okay. But readings and such, I enjoyed. I was a fool. I loved the idea of reading for anybody. Um, that doesn't mean the reading was any good, but I enjoyed the reading. <laughs> Casting is... Nowadays, quite often, 
one of the seven producers, or all seven of them in conjunction, will impose a casting director on you. I'm not saying that a casting director cannot be valuable. He or she certainly can. But if you've read a play and you've seen two or three actors in certain roles and you've worked with them before and you know very well what they can do, you'd like to get those actors in the cast. It's understandable. It's not favoritism at all. It's the idea of saying he's going to be marvelous or she's going to be great in that part. I know her work. I know his work. And very often you're left in the peculiar position of having to make a choice which is not completely your choice. It may be the producer's. It may be the author's, and God knows the author certainly has a right. He has the right legally, and he has a right every other way to have something to say about who's in the cast. So very often the director is not necessarily the one who made that last final choice. And sometimes you go into rehearsal, and around the end of the first week, they agree with you, and then you get the other actor actors in, which is, of course, a horrible situation for the person who's playing the role at the, same, at the moment. I've been through both sides of that, so I know what it's like. Well, you don't get the producer to do it, and you don't get the stage manager to do it. You pick up your guts and you do it. Okay, but how? Would you have to go to the person and say, I'm sorry, it was my mistake? You've all mentioned situations where last minute changes in place, both in the band director and the director. And the game director is around every time, eventually, it's going to hit that situation where four or five days before you open or the day after you open or whatever, you wake up on the way and go, Oh my God, I made a big mistake. I got a huge change, a huge change. What do you do to maintain morale and not lose the active confidence to get through that? And what don't you do? What have you found, both benefits and particularly harmful to that? It's never happened to me, so I can't answer that. <coughs> happened to you in the last week of rehearsal? Did you have to get rid of somebody? Mm-hmm. Don't think so. To replace an actor? No, not to replace an actor. I'm talking about change in, in your approach to what uh, was happening, either stylistic or uh, you want full scenes. Um, I thought you had mentioned earlier a scene that you did in the day. I was talking about Arthur Penn. Who specifically in one particular play had that? But it, it happened. We do it anyway. We, we, uh, gee, whiskers, gee, you, 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 uh, you. My question is. Yes. When you when you saw that as an actor after they've been when you do what I'm sorry to hear that when you saw that as an actor an actor either you experience it as an actor or as a director you have to show it as an actor where it's a big change coming at them and they have to suddenly make a shift from what they began to get comfortable with. You're going to get a certain amount of panic. You do it. And you, you do, do it. it. You sometimes make an enemy. <laughs> I have an enemy in the theater today. Once I took his lines away from him. And he was very much better in the silent bit. It was marvelous how expressive. <laughs> He's never forgiven me. Because he was a mime. 
<laughs> and he wanted very much to speak. But it was better silently, really, very much better. No, you do it. You do it. You do the job that has to be done. You mean when I spoke about empathy and kindness, well, how that interferes with the work as director? In no way should it. I mean, it seems to me when you're going to be ruthless. No, the only, the only way you can feel empathy is if the, if the actor or actress is having difficulty with the role. Then you simply have to spend a lot more time with that person. But uh, as Howard says, if the actor is at, is at fault in your judgment, and usually it isn't just your judgment because by that time the author is screaming down your neck too, then you simply have to say, sorry, can't, can't work it out, can't cut it. Let me rephrase it in a different way. When the author comes to you, the author comes to you and says, I want to change uh, the second scene in Act 1, totally, your total rewrite. And you have to walk in through the three-point opening and plug that in. What you do to lessen and to keep at a minimum the actual panic of, of why you if you're dealing with professional actors, there isn't that much panic. They just do it. They're accustomed to it. My God, we've been out of town with the musicals where they changed it every day. The script was changed all the time. New songs were put in. Old songs were taken out. It's the work that you're doing on the show. And you play one thing in the evening and rehearse a different scene in the oh, daytime. Yeah. That's, that's, that's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> that must be mad. But if you have the feeling that the work is moving somewhere, wouldn't, wouldn't that help it? I mean... Or, or not necessarily, if you think, well, it's getting better. It seems to be a little bit better. Well, your hope is that it is improving. Uh, I, on one particular occasion, I did say no. When a director came to me on the opening night out of town and said, uh, we, we're, we were in Hartford at that miserable Bushnell Auditorium, and he said to me, it was the night before the opening, pardon me, and he said, I've got 20 new pages for you for tomorrow. And he laughed when he said it. And I told him what he could do with the 20. <laughs> <laughs> then, by the way, when we sat down and read the 20 new, page, 20 new pages after the play had opened, the musical had opened, they were no good. But that was because I had an idiot for director. And also a drunken author. <laughs> <laughs> How nice for you. That E.D. director became a big success in Hollywood later. <laughs> and his name is? No. <laughs> Could you talk about the relationship between the director and the choreographer and musical and what it should be? <laughs> Sophie Maslow was the choreographer for Sandhog, and it was part of a total joy in the work relationship because we went from, oh, such a gorgeous time. <laughs> I think that may be partly why, why to be schlogged by the critics was such a, you know, because uh, I thought that it was, to this day, Alexander Schneider met me in a post office one day, only a year or so before. Alexander Schneider? Uh, the year before, and said he wanted to do Sandhog again. Anyway, we, hmm. we went from, we went from, from, choosing the actions of the scene, the purpose and the action of the scene, to the street games of the time, to the objects that were part of the street games, to the games themselves, and to dances coming out of those. When you consider that we had cast young adults as children, and no child younger than 16, 
uh, young adults, including Yuriko, and a wonderful company of dancers. We had a kind of uh, organic dance flowing out of the action scene that was just absolutely delightful, having to do also with the action of building the first tunnel on, under, the, under, under the Hudson River. So that was part of the action, the tunnel building and the, and the hoops and the rods with the hoops and the rest of it. Uh, a total joyous collaboration <clears throat> in which, as in any really successful collaboration, nobody says that was my idea or your idea, his idea. It grew. Nobody knows whose idea it is anymore. It's part of the ensemble's idea. Gorgeous when it works like that. Gorgeous. And then you don't have also the terrible thing of, of the, which is part of our, part of our uh, theater disease, part of our artist's disease, which is, that's mine, it's in mine. I did that, you did that, you did that. No, it was light, it was light. Part of the whole thing of our overproduction these days is to say, when you catch a glimmer of this, when you see my thing. My. So a production in Boston that I took, I took my whole family to. The production in which I said, the, this is going to get all the awards in the world because there's no storyline of any kind. But boy, is it lit. <laughs> and it did get a lot bigger awards for lighting. We've talked a little, um, you touched on hysteria, and but you were trying to talk about changes. I guess just trying to ask is when it's bad, when panic strikes, what do you want from a director? What, what, um, what do you want to do as a director? Do you know? I just think that that's so awful. Just everybody is hysterical. Panic. The uh, and remember has happened only once, and uh, what happened was that unfortunately the director had greater faith in the author than he should have had. He lost judgment, I believe, and the result. The result was that no rewrite ever came about. None. And it was apparent to everybody, apparently, except the author and the director, that desperately it was needed. So the rest of us just went on and did our jobs and hoped that Christ would get over with soon. That's the only occasion I can remember with this utter panic. Have you been in this? Panic strikes, and what can you do as a director, or what do you want a director? to hold it together. I think it closes out of town. <laughs> I've had several of those. Huh. They close out of town. I'd like to speak about one little thing. Uh, you were talking about the relationship between director and choreographer. It, uh, Howard's description is, of course, uh, the dream relationship. And it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, on the other hand, I've been in one situation, the same musical court in time, they wanted me to select the choreographer, and I said, I'd like George Balanchine. <laughs> and we got it. <laughs> and they paid him what he wanted, and he did it. Now, I had known George, I'd worked with him before. And so, I remember trying to have a discussion with him about it. What are you going to do? He said, I don't know yet. I said, well, I'd like to know what you're going to do in that particular thing there, but I just stuck into the show, there's a whole big number coming out, I'd like to know what you're going to do. He said, don't worry about it. I'll show it to you before I let anybody else see it. <laughs> and of course, I had great faith and great trust in him. And it turned out, of course, fine. 
and we had a brilliant young dancer in the show, and he made him do more things he'd never done before. The entire cast, we were out of town for a long time with this miserable show. The entire cast of dancers, every one of them, went to him and begged them to give him classes. Besides the work that they were doing in the show. And he did. Every day they had a class. When you get someone who's as much a contributor as a man like that, there really isn't a great deal to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Lee D Theodore said once at one of these discussions that when she choreographed Apple Tree? Did she? Anyway, she kept trying to have meetings with Mike Nichols to discuss it, and he wouldn't. He absolutely refused. He said, do something. I'll see what it is. No meetings. No meetings. Don't talk about it, do it. Mm. Um, settling it before you go into rehearsal. And then afterwards, all you can do, persuasion, discussion, convincing, you know, that creative process is still part of what we all have to do in every relationship in, the, in, in, in a collaborative art. There's also the other thought, which is perhaps they're right and you're wrong. Hmm. Yes. So you have to try it out and see and find out. If they're right, Say thank you, and if they're wrong, then fight. Yes. But if and if there is not a, a true agreement between the author and the director on the text, it's going to be awfully hard to do any real work. Because for one thing, the director then has to take over the actors. And if he knows that the author is not with him, then what does he do? He directs what the author wants, not necessarily what his vision of the script is. It makes for a kind of schizophrenic situation within the director. Not to mention what happens to the actors. Because nine times out of ten, that author is going to go to the actors and tell them, that's not what I want. Revolution backstage. Conflict. And not answer. Did producers share more of the artistic control over production 30 or 40 years ago than they do now? Some. Um, after all, the man who wrote that marvelous book, How's Your Second Act? Arthur Hopkins was a director as well as a producer, and a very good one. Uh, I had the great fortune of working with him just once, and I found him, he was not directing the show, he was directing the director. But I went straight to the source. And I found it very, very helpful to talk to this man. I knew he'd been a very successful producer, and he produced a lot of things that were prestige plays that were not necessarily big hits. There was also a man years ago, I can't think of his name now, a millionaire, who directed uh, revivals of Gilbert and Sullivan. And he would take them. He'd take uh, Mikado or Pirates or something like that. He did about four of them, I think. 
and put them on for long runs, or as long as his money could last on each particular production. And he directed. And he would approach the cast as saying, you have never seen or heard this show before. This is all brand new. This is not a revival of anything. And from all I've heard from people who worked with him, he was a very good director as well as producer. Whether uh, people like the Theater Guild and Schuldigman, people like the Theater Guild... That means, excuse me, oh Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you had diverse opinions being thrust at you because they rarely agreed among themselves. Uh, they did take a rather, I think, overly large hand in the artistic end of the, of a production. I worked for them twice on Broadway and about three times in Westport. On the other hand, you had to admit that once in a while they were right. Well, one of them was right, not all three at the same time. When they agreed to change the name of Away We Go. Well, big success. That was Terry. <laughs> Terry? Uh. Away We Go was changed to Oklahoma, but it was Terry who insisted that they add the exclamation point. <laughs> Do you remember when they came to you and me and asked us to invest a thousand bucks and it? We didn't have a down? penny. <laughs> I know. God. People were, were pulling their money out of Pretty fast. Where, in New Haven or Boston? Oh, it sounded in New Haven. <laughs> How could they pull their money out? I mean, they gave their money. Well, they didn't give any more. In other words, they were... They were I don't know that they were legally committed to giving more, but they were supposed to give more. And then, of course, the famous thing happened with the playwright. Uh, Lynn Hayes. No, I don't mean Lynn. He's a darling man. The a darling man. Very successful playwright. I can't remember now. The Guild practically blackmailed him into giving them $5,000 because they didn't have the money to get to Boston. Well, that blackmail paid off pretty well. You <laughs> <laughs> wrote Reunion in Vienna. Sherwood. No, uh, not Sherwood. Behrman. I'm thinking of Behrman. I remembered something. Yeah, Behrman. <laughs> they called in their, their, uh, their bills wherever they possibly could. It's a, it was a scrambling job. Nobody wanted to invest any money in the show, especially after New Haven. What did it cost, Alfred? $80,000. Oh, God. Oh, God. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Other times. When did people think it would be a hit? Not until it hit New York? Or? Well, the cast had a hunch that it was good and it was going to be a hit. We didn't know it was going to be that kind of hit. But the cast felt that way, oh... I don't know, maybe the first feeling we got that it was really going to be a hit was the very first time we saw Agnes's choreography mm -hmm. for the end of the first act. Mm -hmm. Maybe, at least that's the way I think I felt at the time. And then it was an unusual musical, you know. There were legitimate actors in it. Howard, um, uh, Celeste, mm -hmm. um, the name of the woman who played Aunt Ella. Betty Gard. Betty Gard. Bravo. No, I didn't do oh, somebody Betty Gard and myself, we'd all had acting experience other than musicals. And uh, that was a little unusual in casting as well as in anything else. Oh, Jesus. Uh, again, but there were so many things about the lifted your spirits. I mean, the son of a gun's first entrance. Oh, what a beautiful man. That first buoyant, joyous entrance. Jesus. H. Sebastian. I didn't write it. <laughs> but you sure brought it on. Oh, boy. There is an interesting story about that, by the way. Richard Rogers had worked only with Larry Hart before this particular play. And uh, we were going to do auditions to try and raise money. We didn't raise a cent. Auditions never raised a penny. 
And but we were to learn the songs. And Richard called me up. I had worked for him before. And he asked me to go to Steinway Hall, where he had taken over a room. And he played the score for me. And my mouth was hanging over, and I kept saying, God, that's so marvelous. One song after another, that was so great. And he said, you really mean that? I was astounded. If you had known Richard Rodgers at all, he would never ask anybody an opinion, let alone a musical comedy performer. He didn't have great respect for actors and actresses. And I was shocked and said, yes, of course I mean it. He said, well, you realize I've never worked with anybody but Larry before, and this is very new to me, and I'm not certain at all. And he said, I want to warn you something about Beautiful Morning. I said, yes. He says, it's just an opening throwaway. It's to set the mood. Don't expect much applause on it. <laughs> that was the composer. Is that what happened? No, we got a good hand. <laughs> We should win towards closing. Anything final? Uh, Would you talk a little bit about the movie theater? I know this is directly involved with directing, but I would love to get input from you about your involvement. I was a peripheral. I wasn't a member of the group theater. I was an actor on the periphery of the group. I was around there. I was in the theater union. And I I would have stayed out of the civic rep for the rest of my life if they had paid me $24 a week. I was a theater ghost. I loved that theater. And whatever it changed into, I would have stayed with. So that my work with the group was as a peripheral uh, actor in it. I was in two, two productions. Lefty, Kate, three productions. Lefty, Casey, well, the Lefty wasn't really a group theater production. Lefty, Casey Jones, and, 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 and Gold Boy. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I remember, I remember with joy and, uh, and, uh, and, and sadness, well, sadness because one of their wonderful actors passed away just this past year, Luther, Luther Adler, who was extraordinary, extraordinary, both as, both as Bonaparte, the fighter in, in Awake and Sing, and I think of him in, 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 uh, in, in Golden Boy, and I think of him as Fuseli, the... the, the you don't mean Fuseli. Fuseli, Fuseli, I mean the other one in the Wake and Sing, the the uh, the dissolute one. And anyway, but I remember his his the acting, brother. brother. I remember playing cards with Morris, the heartbreaking. Uh, so I remember the, you know, Would you the spirit of that theater, the spirit of that. Uh, But you have worked with a number of the actors who were in the group. Yeah. Morris. Yes, sure. Sure. Even the Lucky production that got such a huzzah, that opening, that one thing that they did down now. You're talking about when you say Lucky, waiting for Lucky. Yes. Were you in that production? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. On January 6th of this past year, it would have been 50 years since the opening of that lefty at the Civic Repertory Theater. The lefty in which so many people try to kick over fire hydrants after the production and wondered why they didn't kick over. You know, a feeling of enormous power and, 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 and effectiveness. I had the occasion this past year, in November, to direct a company, uh, uh, a company of uh, graduates and, and some not from Purchase called the True Ensemble Theater the average age being about 21 or 2, in which uh, production of Waiting for Lefty. 
and uh, and uh, it, it, it went very well. It was it was extraordinary, the enthusiasm and effectiveness of that uh, of that production. I've been well, Alfred has too, but I've been in about four or five first nights like that, which were just overwhelming and splendid. I don't know if we anticipated that Oklahoma would be that kind of a smash, but I knew damn well that it had enormous, joyous things about it. It only, it, only took, yeah, it only took five minutes afterwards for us to know that it really, you know, that, that it, was the, it, was, it was the, what's it, the hardest ticket? The, the, Within the, one the, week, the, you couldn't the, get in. You couldn't get in at all. We, I we won had, a bed opening night. Oh, yeah, Did yeah. I tell you that? No, no. Jimmy saw it. He won a bed opening night. Uh, he said, you're going to get bad reviews. And I said, I'll bet you 20 bucks right now. We don't, and I won. Uh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. But, you know, it became the... Uh, but I was just thinking of the... Uh, what were you What? What were The world of Shalom Aleichem was that kind of production in which, you know, we frequently say... What would you, what would you, uh, as a director, uh, uh, how much have you envisioned and what would you ultimately see? And, and since I had cast myself as Mendel, as a book peddler, I was able then to be a catalyst, to come down with a baby carriage, lean against the proscenium, look at the audience and then relate them to this experience and, and then see the experience and their reaction to it. And in there, the joy of seeing their response on a very high and lovely level, it ran a year. It ran a year and, 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 and a beautiful, but that opening night was that kind of wonderful, joyous experience. And one in which, one in which I, I trusted myself to be an actor in it because I was not, strictly speaking, involved in the experience, but a catalyst on the outside, uh, communicating this largely uh, esoteric culture to an audience not familiar with it. So, anyway, but that was one of those nights. Uh, <laughs> Evil Gallion's production, original production of Alice in Wonderland was one of those nights. Gorgeous night. Gorgeous night. Uh, and as the white night, you should know. Yeah, gorgeous. Well, thank you. Punster. I think we have to end because they'll throw us out. But uh, it was terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you. Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.